Hello everyone and welcome back to The Alternative. I'm so happy that you're here with me today. I could not edit this episode fast enough for you all to be honest. It's it's an incredible episode and my guest is the amazing Canyon Woodward. He is a successful author, campaign manager, a professional ultra runner, a graduate of Harvard. He also happens to be my cousin. And he also happens to be such a force of love and wisdom and integrity. And I think especially in our current uh, political climate here in the United States, things can feel heavy and hopeless. And if that's how you've been feeling, then you've tuned into the right place because Canyon Woodward is going to be your medicine. He's going to show you an alternative way that people can conduct themselves and that it can work. Love and kindness and positivity can be successful in our current political landscape and he is living, breathing proof of that. So please enjoy this episode, be inspired, be uplifted, and if you feel called to, get involved. Canyon will tell you all about how you can if you feel moved. And I'm going to quit talking and let him take over. Enjoy. Good morning. Heck yeah. Good morning. How are you? So good to see <laughs> it's you. It's good to see you. I'm, <laughs> I'm doing great. Living, living the dream down here in North Carolina. We finally turned the corner from five degree weather and enjoying it. Yeah, I'm just, I'm living vicariously through you right now. Those of you listening to the podcast, Canyon is in the most picturesque setting. He's in the middle of the woods. There's <laughs> trees all around him. It's spectacular. Well, I wanted to start off because I think you have such a great story that people are going to really be inspired by. And I think the beginning, the foundation of who you are is really relevant. And I think that starts with your parents. So I know they're really special people. If you could tell me about your mom and dad. Well, gosh, first off, that's generous. I feel like I'm just mucking through a lot of the time. But um, yeah, I mean, gosh, I feel like I had the best best childhood in the world. Um, let me let me try and think of a succinct way to sum it up. I guess I was the youngest youngest of four kids. Um, siblings are Rivers, Force, and Autumn. I'm Canyon. We all, all got this nature names, which we love. And um, mom and dad homeschooled us all the way through high school. Um, I ended up taking some some classes at the public high school um, in high school, but otherwise totally homeschooled and just a huge focus on experiential education, outdoor education, not a ton of formal coursework and big emphasis on play, especially early on, spent so much time, you know, outside building forts on the mountain with siblings and our friends and got to do a lot of traveling in the, in the nineties and early two thousands, mostly, mostly pre internet and especially Latin America. You know, we lived, lived on a really, really careful budget, but mom and dad really prioritized travel and exposing us to different cultures and different ways of life and 
So we'd pack up for two months, three months at a time and head down to Latin America and travel by, you know, local, local bus, four people squeezed on the, a bus seat and chickens everywhere. And we'd find someone who'd let us pitch a tent in their backyard, or we'd find a hostel to stay in. And um, it was a really, really interesting way to grow up that I feel so, so fortunate to have had. That's incredible. And I'm just wondering, is there a particular place that you remember visiting that was really impactful for you? The first that pops into my mind is my second birthday in Costa Rica. I got a sweet ball and a cutamundi popped it. I was devastated. A cutamundi? A cutamundi. It's funny, funny little, uh, yeah, like raccoons with long tails up to no good. Um, but Costa Rica has been kind of a, a touchstone. We've gone back there a number of times, did a couple of homestays with this sweet family that I still still t- stay in touch with. The other one that really comes to mind is senior year of high school, graduated early and did a brother's trip just with my older brother, Forrest, who's seven years older than me, um, which was a pretty big age gap. We didn't have like a super super tight relationship growing up just purely because of the age gap into different different things and so that trip spending two months together down in in Argentina and and Brazil and up to Nicaragua we just like really really bonded and became best friends and that felt like a really really important sort of bridge into more adulthood and leaving home and going off to college and that was a really special mm-hmm. time. That's beautiful. And doing all of this traveling from such a young age, how has that influenced the way that you look at the world? Because I think you have a really different lens. Yeah. I mean, I think it's had a huge impact. I, I imagine a ton of it is, I mean, I can think of a lot of ways that it's impacted me, but I think I'm probably unaware of a lot of it too. I think there's a lot that is just implicit and I never really reflected on that much being a kid amongst it. Um, but I think one of the, one of the big ways is just realizing how, how much abundance there is in, in my life and our lives here growing up and the incredible privilege of just the lottery of where you're born and how much we have in the U.S., just basics like potable running water, hot water, hot shower you can hop into and seeing, you know, seeing folks really thriving and happy living in such different conditions, living with so much less um, was also really impactful, seeing that you don't, that material stuff is in important and a luxury especially the basics like running water but ultimately um, you don't need all that much to be happy but I think it also gave gave a really important kind of political lens into the U.S.'s role in the world too especially in Latin America Um, I remember we were in Guatemala when I was a kid I think right after they had a democratically elected uh, a populist leader who was 
doing a good bit of redistribution of the land down there back to the people from from the the big corporations that had come in and snatched a lot of it up and folks were really really celebrating that and i think i think shortly after that the us was super influential in overthrowing that government and that's a story throughout latin america of the us going against democratically elected governments to install more more us corporate friendly leaders down there. So that's a bit of a digression, but I think that was an important part of the story. For yeah, me. no, it's helpful <clears throat> to hear your take. And it, and it certainly has, uh, you know, noticing these things has certainly influenced the trajectory of everything that you've done going forward and your value system. So I think that that matters. And I don't think that that's a story that gets talked about a lot. So thank you. I have some questions about what the homeschooling experience looked like, what that model looked like. You said it was a lot of freedom. And so for anyone that is considering this or has no idea what it would look like, a typical week for you, how was your day ordered? How much freedom were you given? <laughs> so much freedom um, to the point where no, I would say no, no week really looked quite the same. I I, th I think a lot of folks would maybe call it unschooling these days, a lot a lot of it, rather than homeschooling. I'm not totally sure we call it homeschooling. And we did have, we did have formal curriculum in math and writing in particular, but that was pretty much it. You know, we worked through, worked through math textbooks, mostly on our own, once we got to the age where we could and would just phone a friend or phone a parent when we needed help um, but otherwise we're independent on that and on the writing piece worked with a, a good family friend Anna Maria um, who was a college professor and she really was amazing with our writing instruction but otherwise we were pretty free to do whatever we were interested in with our time as long as it wasn't playing video games <laughs> <laughs> um, had a pretty pretty tight limit on that to our our chagrin but um yeah we could really just you know we had a, a decent idea of what we wanted to accomplish in a week and i could sit down and bang it out in six or seven hours on a monday and have the rest of the week free if i wanted or could spread it out and procrastinate which is usually what i would choose <laughs> <laughs> but a ton a ton of freedom so you knew what your responsibilities were for the week, and it was up to you from a young age to decide for yourself, and yeah. and you were able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great for parents to hear. Yeah. You know, I think mom and, mom and dad did a really good job of making a lot of it fun, and I don't know. I, I'm sure everybody... Everybody's different and we were not overburdened by the amount of work by any means. And for whatever reason, I feel like we were interested in it or saw the value in it enough that, that we got it done. Is there uh, a particular subject that you took a liking to that you really gravitated towards? I feel like a lot of it was more, more ac <laughs> activity focused and almost like what you would call extracurriculars and a traditional school system rather than rather than coursework. Pottery stands out as one that I really latched on to. We had a, a really good family friend, Doug Hobbs, who was a master potter here and we'd go over and help him with firewood in exchange for pottery lessons. And then my aunt Susie ended up 
handing down an old wheel to me that she no longer used. And so I had my own wheel and got really into pottery, ended up doing that through college. I ended up running the, the student pottery studio in college and, and have really stuck with it ever since. I just love that. I love that there was an equal amount of emphasis on the arts and unlimited time to pursue your artistic interests. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I know that in addition to a love of pottery and the arts, you are also a professional ultra runner. For people who have no idea what this is, they've never heard that language before, what does that mean? <laughs> it means running really far, eating lots of snacks, <laughs> shuffling forward. <laughs> um, so I, I, and the ultra, an ultra is anything longer than a marathon. So anything longer than 26.2 miles. And my, um, my focus is on 100K to, to 100 mile races, which I, I do a, a handful of a year and the biggest the most competitive one in the world is um every every summer over in france ultra trail du mont blanc and it's uh, about 106 miles doing a full full loop out of chamonix france into switzerland italy back into to france running around mont blanc with like 30 3000 feet of elevation gain that's the biggie that i train for and um yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, how do you possibly prepare for something like this? What does training look like for you? Funnily enough, it's not that much different from marathon training in terms of the mileage. Like you, you kind of just cap out at a certain point where it's diminishing returns. If you try and push your body beyond that, it just, it just breaks down. So, and then I'm on the, the lower mileage spectrum of it amongst the folks who do it, do it professionally, but I, a normal week for me looks like about 70 to, to 80 miles of training, getting up into to the low hundreds in, in peak training. 70 to 80 miles a week. Wow. <laughs> I just, it's amazing. It's really amazing. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of crazy when I step back and think about it. I definitely wouldn't have been able to imagine it uh, not too too long ago, but at some point, you know, you get in the rhythm of it and it doesn't feel that hard anymore. It's kind of just like, okay, I got 12, 12 miles to go knock out. I've got a window between Zoom calls. Here we go. You just go and do it. So what are you getting out of running? What is, what is it providing for you in your life? God, so, so much. I feel so grateful that, that, running has become such a core part of my life i the most tangible things are just like how i feel physically and mentally and spiritually when i'm running consistently you know i've had i've had off times since getting into it consistently where i've been able to compare the difference and just having having that physical regimen where the you're getting the endorphins out you're getting your body moving you're away from the screens and fully in your body and connected to the trail or 
the dirt road and the land that you're moving through with the sun on your skin on a daily basis is just so important. And then I think that has just a huge impact on my spirits and how I feel in my day to day. It's a really good time to to process. Sometimes I'll toss on an audiobook or a podcast or call a friend, but most of the time it's just running in silence and letting letting the thoughts move through, processing things and just having really really valuable time with myself without any any other distractions. Mm. Yeah, it truly sounds like it's very nurturing mind, body, spirit for you. I I really feel that from you. Yeah, it really is. And definitely doesn't feel that way all the time in the in the moment, you know. There's definitely days where it's really hard to get out the door and get it done, but I've I've made a, enough of a commitment to it now that I I'm pretty impeccable with with my training even if I don't feel like it and like type type too fun even when it feels that way I still I still just feel so much better in my in my body and in my spirits so I know you're very modest which I love but I have to point out that I know you have uh, the fastest known time for a particular 72 mile stretch through the Smoky Mountains. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I know you ran into some trouble there too. Oh man. Yeah. So it's a really, really cool route. It's end to end of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, um, which is just basically in our backyard here where we grew up. Um, So following the Appalachian Trail for 72 miles through there, there's only one one access point around the midpoint of the trail. And otherwise you're just out there with, with no roads or, or anything, just following ridge lines, looking down into beautiful, beautiful valleys that probably hardly ever see a human these days. And I tried it for the first time in 2020 and came up, came up well short of the record and then got to go back a year or two ago and, and set the, set the record gosh yeah it it <laughs> it's a fun route it uh it bit me pretty hard on that last attempt i think about 20 miles in i took a a pretty burly fall barreling recklessly downhill which is kind of my signature style i make up a lot of time usually on the downhills this time i I uh, ate it and just found myself laying on the ground and was feeling to see if anything was out of whack and felt like I got pretty lucky and stood up, started to get moving again and realized my finger was looking a little little bit funky and turned out that I I'd shattered that pretty well in, in three places, but didn't know at the time. I was like, mm, maybe a minor dislocation. I don't know. I'll deal with it. Deal with it tomorrow and was able to finish out the route and but it was an eventful it was an eventful attempt wow I just (laughs) I I am really in awe of your mindset because a lot of people I think would have a setback like that and decide "Eh, maybe that's enough for today but you just pushed right on through how do you do that what what are you what's the thought process in your mind I mean I guess you know you go down and 
the first thought is like, oh shit, this could, excuse <laughs> my French, this could be major. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'm out here at that point, probably a good 15 miles from the nearest road. So um, if it's something more incapacitating, it's going to be a big deal. And so mostly just being able to hop up and realize it's not a knee, it's not anything, it's just a it's just a finger what do you need that for (laughs) (laughs) and i don't know i think (laughs) uh i was i don't know i probably had endorphins going crazy it didn't i didn't feel like it hurt all that much uh so i was just i felt like i was making great time and i was excited for doing what i was out there to do that day and felt like i was able to to keep on keep on going after Mm -hmm. it Well, I love your attitude. I really do. I admire it. And I can't help but notice there is this through line in your life, this love for nature and the earth. And that continues on, especially when you begin school at Harvard. How did it really, this love for the earth, transform into more of a mission while you were there? Yeah. Yeah, so definitely, definitely grew up with a really strong environmental ethic, I think, passed down from mom and dad, and just partly, it's just impossible not to when you spend as much time outdoors as as we did, and in college, really began to connect the dots a little bit more with climate change, it was 2011 when I went to college, and um, the Keystone XL pipeline fight was really really heating up at that time and so I got to get involved with that a little bit and then I met Chloe Maxman who became my best friend and who I still do organizing work with to this day Um, and she started a campaign called Divest Harvard to try and pressure Harvard to divest its 50 some billion dollar endowment from fossil fuel companies to try and stigmatize the fossil fuel industry on on a, a bigger scale um, as part of a, a coordinated movement on on campuses across the country led in part by bill mckibben and 350.org and chloe really took up the mantle at harvard and i co-coordinated it with her and built it into this really serious organizing campaign we got over seventy thousand folks signed on to it thousands of faculty members and alumni and students and um after a lot of just refusal to engage with us at all from the the president and the board we escalated into some pretty serious direct action where we'd do sit-ins and blockades of the president's office and um a lawsuit and um just really put a ton of pressure on and Ultimately, it worked. It took a while, but um, about 10 years years in, a couple of years ago, Harvard finally announced that it was going to divest. Congratulations. That's incredible. Thanks. I mean, yeah, for me, more than anything, it was a political home. It was a place where I, I learned the power of people coming together to organize for for a shared vision and put pressure on where necessary. And I feel like, yeah, it really altered the trajectory of my life. 
Yeah, certainly. And your friendship with Chloe as well definitely evolved in a very special way. Uh, can you tell me what happened there? Yeah. So after after coordinating Divest together, we we graduated and and kind of went our separate ways. Kept in kept in really good touch. Um, I went and worked on the Bernie campaign in in 2015, 2016, back back in the Carolinas, and Chloe moved right back home to Maine and got involved with campaigning as well, which I think was a big surprise for both of us. Certainly for me, I had always been so repulsed by electoral politics and by politicians and wanted nothing to do with it. And it was really through that climate organizing that I developed the understanding of just how critical politics and our electeds are for shaping the response that's necessary to tackle systemic crises like climate change. It's just, you know, yes, we should reduce our own emissions and our individual carbon footprint as much as we can, but really that's um, that's kind of a misdirection from fossil fuel industries. You know, they've really pushed this idea of the individual carbon footprint through dedicated PR campaigns to take the take the eyes off the prize, which is really that we need large scale federal and state legislation to, to curb emissions. So anyway, getting a, a little bit into the weeds there, but um, that was what what really drew us to, okay, although although I it's the last thing I want to do in some ways, it's so necessary to get involved with politics. And um, so I learned a lot working on the Bernie campaign and then heard from Chloe in early 2018 that she was going to run for office in her hometown state house district and she was going to be running as a Democrat in the plus 16 Republican district and you know as a 25 year old pretty leftist activist I thought I thought she had lost it a little <laughs> bit, but I agreed to come up there and <laughs> manage her campaign and, and she ended up winning um, and then and then getting recruited to run for the state Senate seat uh, the next cycle in 2020 and managed to take down the sitting Republican leader, the most powerful Republican in state government at 28 years old, become the youngest woman senator that Maine has ever had. Wow. I just, I have chills hearing the story and you managed both of these campaigns. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And in my research, I saw that you all ran a really unique campaign. It was very grassroots oriented, door to door, really focused on connecting with the individual one-on-one. -on -one. What inspired that and how did that take shape for you? Yeah, I, I think it goes back again a, a lot to our divest days and realizing realizing the power of that organizing, but that we hadn't really been exposed to that in our small towns and thinking, how can we take these principles of community organizing back to where we're from and translate it to an electoral campaign setting and you know, going in, especially in 2018, running in a plus 16 district, we were really clear with ourselves that the chances of winning were not great. And so we wanted the campaign to build 
local leadership and organizing infrastructure and capacity that would benefit the community long term, hopefully, regardless of the outcome of the election. So that was a really important piece of it, leaning super hard into the grassroots and turning down all of the typical party consultants and just doing everything in-house. And then another big piece of it was running a 100% positive campaign. We were so tired of the, the really toxic, divisive campaigns that we've been seeing with just negative attack ad after negative attack ad. And so um, made that a core, a core pillar of the campaign too, and really stuck to it, the idea that we wanted to leave the the community better than than we found it for for having run the campaign that all really resonated with folks and we were able to reach people face to face most importantly have thousands of conversations with people at their doorsteps and just listen to them and folks hadn't really seen that kind of effort put into seek them out and include them in the process and that really really was what i think moved folks to to take a chance on chloe yeah it is really moving to hear about i'm just so struck by the power of your intention and empathetic listening with each individual and how that really can create massive change what have you noticed happens when you really open up your heart and are willing to connect and listen one-on-one with someone, even if you disagree. So much opportunity where before there, there were just kind of caricatures of each other, especially when we were reaching, you know, reaching folks who were a good bit different from us ideologically. You know, I think more and more these days, especially with our social media bubbles and with the polarization of the media we just have these we have the most uncharitable pictures of the other side built up in our head yeah both both sides do it whether we just pick out the worst parts of the other side and we paint that onto everybody who voted for trump or voted for biden or voted for whoever and if you can just show up and listen and try and genuinely empathize with why somebody has come to the conclusions that they've come to, you'll realize that most folks are really decent, kind human beings and and that there's at least some things that you can find common ground on. And more than anything, there's a, a mutual appreciation for for the connection and the opportunity to to just like see each other as as neighbors, as folks living in a community with, you know, some really basic shared hopes for, for the future and for their families and their kids. And so I think that was, that was what those conversations revealed. And that's what they were about. It's beautiful. I want to see more campaigns run this way. Me too. It's a darn shame. The amount of money that we just pour into awful toxic tv ads rather than rather than this kind of campaigning well and that leads me to your work now because you are still at it you and chloe and you have created an organization together can you tell me about it 
and how people can get involved. Yeah, I'd be psyched to. Um, it's called Dirt Road Organizing, a, a play off of Dirt Road Revival, which was the book that we wrote, kind of reflecting on lessons learned on the campaign trail. And folks can go to dirtroadorganizing.org if, if you're curious and getting more information about it. But our focus is on training the next generation of rural candidates and organizers. And so we're we're doing a ton of work with folks who are thinking about running at the state or local level in in their own rural community and also doing a ton of work with folks who are um, doing issue organizing whether that's on affordable housing or environmental work in public lands um, and so bringing folks together especially in small small cohorts and training them and mentoring folks and coaching folks and then giving them lots of training on relevant skills for doing that work in their communities. Fantastic. So for the person with zero political experience who wants to do something, feels compelled, but feels like, I don't even know where to start, they should call you. A hundred percent. Yeah. 828-342-5999. Give me a call or it. text or email me. <laughs> and it will help you. You're, you're needed. All, <laughs> in all seriousness, you know, this is what Chloe and I are, are dedicated to, to doing with our lives now. And we desperately, desperately need more good people to just run for office. Chloe had never been a candidate before. I'd never managed a campaign before. You know, we did have a decent bit of experience under our belts um, that was relevant to the campaigning, but you don't, you don't have to have it all figured out by any means. Um, I love <laughs> the, the quote from Michelle Obama. I wish I remembered it exactly, but the paraphrase was something to the effect of, you know, I have been in, I've been in all of those rooms at the, you know, top, top of the top and the folks in those rooms are not that smart you know if they can if they can do it you can do it essentially and gosh we need we need better folks in those rooms um, whether it's your local school board or county commissioners or state legislature on all the way on on up we just desperately need normal good people to put themselves out there and be willing to to run and, and serve their communities I couldn't agree with you more. Reach out. Yes, please reach out. There is nothing to be intimidated about. You are needed. We need more people with beating hearts in their chests who are impassioned about these issues and who really want to create a better world for all of us. And the climate is something that impacts every single person. It is crucial that we get working on it now, yesterday. So I think your message is really really just so inspiring that you can learn along the way. There's coaching, there's help. What matters is your intention. You can figure out the rest along the way. Totally. Well, I wanted to also ask you, how can people see the beautiful film that Forrest made? Oh, yeah. It's it's a short film called called Rural Runners, and it's it's going to be – available on 
Vimeo really shortly if it's not already. If you have show notes, I think we could put a put a private link in there. Anyone who's interested, this is a gorgeous film that if you're not already incredibly moved by Canyon and his story, watch this watch this film. It will bring tears to your eyes all about the parallels between running and the political campaign that Canyon and Chloe did together and how they were victorious against some pretty wild odds. What's giving you hope right now? The folks, the folks in our dirt road candidate cohorts and, and the organizers as well are giving me so much hope seeing so many young folks, especially, um, but folks of all ages in their small towns all across the country who are doing just incredible work, whether it's putting themselves out there to run for state house or or doing that issue-based organizing work and and building that leadership and, and long-term community organizing capacity where they are. I feel so, so fortunate to just be connected to those folks and get to hear their stories and what what they're doing on the ground. I'm such a firm believer that that's the kind of that's the kind of work that builds builds up on a national skill and really really affects meaningful change and so I've never seen never seen I mean I'm pretty young so I don't have a lot of years under <laughs> my belt to see stuff but I feel like this is a unique moment with young younger folks and the younger ge- generations really vigorously engaging with politics and with systems and thinking critically and getting involved and excited to see that continue to snowball and that's what gives me the most hope gorgeous so i'm gonna have links to all of this in the notes uh to dirt road organizing all the ways that people can message you get into communication and begin helping because i know people are gonna feel rallied after they listen to this and yeah is there anything else that you want to leave people with I don't think so. This was such a fun conversation, Christy. Thank you. It really was. You have no idea. I just, I adored every minute of it. I am in awe of you and I, I want to do whatever I can to shine a spotlight on you and the work that you're doing because it's extraordinary and it is, it is changing the world. So thank you for being you. Likewise. Thank you, Christy. Wow. Don't you just love him? I hope you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you want to get involved, the organization is called Dirt Road Organizing, and their website is dirtroadorganizing.org. You can learn more there. You can reach out that way. And yes, I did double check with Canyon. And yes, he is okay with leaving his phone number in the episode. So if you want to call him directly, that's available to you as well. Please do. He welcomes it. And the book I wanted to mention as well, that is called Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It. If you want to learn more about an alternative campaign strategy and how kindness and integrity work, 
It is by Chloe Maxman and Kenyon Woodward. It's available everywhere, Amazon, anywhere books are sold. The film that we had referenced is called Rural Runners. It is by Kenyon's brother, Forrest, also my cousin. It's a gorgeous portrait of the campaign that Kenyon and Chloe created together and it's really really moving i highly recommend it i'm gonna have that linked in the notes uh, below so please do check it out and until next time stay tuned and stay open to possibilities have a great week everyone